All right, well, for the last time for the foreseeable future, why don't you take your Bibles and open to Mark. We are in chapter 16. And this morning as we come to the end of the Gospel of Mark, I want to start by telling you something that I have changed my mind about. Something that took me a long time to become convinced of, but I'm there. Most of you know I like to read. Maybe I could say I love to read. And for most of my life, I thought that if I started a book, then I was obligated to finish that book. And I, I do finish a lot of books, for the record. And there are a lot of books that are worth reading cover to cover and sometimes more than once. But here's what's changed for me. I've decided there are some books that just don't need to be finished. Some books, friends, are just bad books. And you get a little ways, this is not worth my time. There's other books that may be 200 pages long, but you get about 50 pages in and you got it, right? The publisher wanted 200 pages. The author had about 50 pages worth of things to say. You've got it. You can move on. So sometimes if I get halfway or three quarters of a way through a book and I feel like I've got what I set out to get, I'll put it away. Now, the old me, that wasn't an option. Started the book, paid for the book, finishing the book, right? But I would be tired of it, so I would just sit there on my desk, just waiting, taunting me, mocking me. You haven't finished me yet. And eventually I would give up and grudgingly put it on the shelf. But with full intent, I'm going to finish it. Not anymore. I've gone and I've taken those bookmarks out of those books that aren't going to be finished. Sometimes you don't need a whole book. Sometimes you don't have to finish every book. But this morning as we come to the end of the Gospel of Mark, I want us to consider that this is a book that must be read all the way to the end. It's a book that if you don't finish it, you will miss the most important part. It's not until the final page and the final paragraph that we get the full story and the full significance of what Mark is communicating to us. If you were with us, a long time ago, at the beginning of Mark, you'll remember that he begins the book with a sort of purpose statement. He gives us his aim for the book. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And on that Sunday, many, many months ago, I told you that here in this first verse, he is telling us, this is my goal. I want to communicate to you that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And I want to prove to you that he is, in fact, the Son of God. A short introduction, but this is Mark's aim, to tell us about Jesus and to convince us that he is who he claimed to be. He is, in fact, the very Son of God. He's writing to tell his readers the good news. And so we've gone through the book of Mark, and he's been doing this, communicating that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, as he's shared with us the teaching of Jesus. He's told us about his miracles. He's helped us see this interaction between he and his disciples and how that itself also proves who Jesus is. Even through his opposition, there's been proof that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the Son of God. But here's the reality. If the Gospel of Mark ended at the last verse of chapter 15 then we would be left with some reason to doubt that Jesus was, in fact, 
who he claimed to be. There would still be questions. The reason I say that is because chapter 15 ends with Jesus dead in a tomb. And do you remember where the disciples were at this point? They're in hiding. Their faith is shaken. And if the story stops here, there's no good reason to expect that they come back together in a rally around anything. If the story stops here, the message and the ministry of Jesus would quickly fade into the past. In fact, I would argue if the story of Jesus ended at the end of Mark 15 or Matthew 27, Luke 19, I think, if it ended there, we wouldn't be here this morning. The story, the message of Jesus would not have persisted. It would not have had any reason to. It's not just my argument. It's the argument of God through the Apostle Paul. That even with everything Jesus did, his, his teaching, his miracles, even his death on the cross, if all that happened and the story of Jesus ended there, we do not have enough. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. If, friends, in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is the point. If Jesus died and stayed in the grave, we don't have anything related to him to hope in. If his life, ministry, and death all took place, but it ended with a dead man in a tomb, friends, you are still in your sins. There's no hope of forgiveness. You're still under the wrath of God. And when you die, you will face eternal judgment. Aren't you glad the Gospel of Mark doesn't end with chapter 15? We have eight more verses final eight verses of the book, and if you're looking at more than that, we're going to talk about that before we end this morning. But here we have an empty tomb, a risen Savior, and the source of our hope. So we're going to end the book. We're going to read the rest of the book, and the end, it changes, it changes everything. The end of the book changes it all. Here's a side note told you earlier, I've been reading about missionaries in Ukraine in particular. Men and women who did not have to stay. But they're there because they believe this. That Jesus rose from the dead. And that his death gives purpose. They've stayed because they believe the story is true. They've stayed because they believe there is life after death. And they've stayed based on testimonies I've read, because they believe every person needs to know the truth about Jesus, even in countries that are getting blown up, maybe especially in countries that are getting blown up. It's my prayer that God would use our time and his word this morning to remind us of how significant this is, that we have news worth giving our lives for. Mark chapter 16. I'm going to read verses 1 to 8. hope you'll follow along as I read. Hear the word of God. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. 
And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. The man said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But now go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Now, before we go any further, I want to encourage you to forget what I just read. Just for a few minutes. Forget that you already know the end of the story. For just a minute, forget that you know the best news of history. Let's go back to where we ended last week. Jesus is dead. His disciples are in hiding. Joseph, this unlikely disciple, has taken his body and put it in a tomb. And as we come to the beginning of chapter 16, we have these women who have not let Jesus out of their sight. You remember these ladies? They've been faithful followers of Jesus for a long time. And Mark told us that he, they were there at the crucifixion. He, he mentions them at the crucifixion, watching from afar. And then last week, he told us that they were there, and they watched as Joseph took the body of Jesus, and they watched where he put it. And now as we start chapter 16, we see that they know that Jesus has died, and we expect, based on their actions, that they do not expect anything more. But though Jesus is dead, they want to honor him. And as soon as they have an opportunity, they are headed to the tomb to anoint his body for burial. Friends, these are ladies who love Jesus. They have been faithful to him. When everyone else fled, Mark says they were there. They watched his crucifixion. They watched his burial. And now, this final act of honor. Now, this is not typically the order of things, is it? Normally, a person would die, and then their body would be anointed, and then they would be put into the grave. But remember, time didn't allow. And it doesn't seem that they had access. So as soon as they have the chance, they're going to the tomb. The good news is, the faithfulness, and the love of these women. The bad news is Jesus has been dead for quite a while. Remember, he died on Friday. We've got Saturday into Sunday morning. I told you last week about my former job. Without embalming, without refrigeration, this was not going to be a pleasant experience. Now, when we think about that Sunday morning, the sun shining like it is today, and these ladies are going to the tomb, and it's all happy because we know the end. But I want you to consider that this probably was not a happy walk. They're grieving. 
and they know they are about to get up close and personal with the body of someone they love and a body that's not in good condition. This was not going to be a pleasant experience. But they loved Christ. They wanted to honor him. And so they went. Now, the scripture tells us that the night before, remember, Saturday was the Sabbath, but Sabbath ends at sundown. So we're told that after the Sabbath ends, people start moving around, stores start opening. They go and they buy the spices they need so that first thing Sunday morning, they could get and go. We see their love, their commitment, this final act of honor, this final act of devotion. Verse 2, early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They're up, they're going, but there is a problem. The problem is they do not have a plan for how they are going to access the tomb. Remember, it's been sealed. This huge stone has been rolled into place, and from what I understand, it would get rolled, and then it would kind of fall in. So they'd have to pull it out and roll it away, and not something that they probably could have done on their own. And in an ideal situation, they'd grab some of the 12, but these guys aren't anywhere to be found. So here they go, hoping that God will make a way. And we're told in verse 3, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? If we're, careful, we can, if we're not careful, we could get ahead of the story. Again, we know what's coming. But what did they expect? They expect a sealed tomb. They expect a lifeless body. We know that everything has already changed. And God's plan for them is not to move a stone. His plan is not for them to anoint a body. His plan is for them to be the first witnesses that Jesus is alive. We're going to get to that. But first, I just want to say this one more time. Mark has brought up these women three times, and so I'm going to say it three times. God wants us to see these women. And I think he wants us to see their faithfulness. These women are the examples of the kinds of Christ followers we should want to be. When everyone else left, they stayed. That's an example for us. The disciples went ahead. The people who had crowded around Jesus, they're gone. But Mark has mentioned these women three times, and I think it's in part because they are an example of what it looks like for us to be fully in love with Christ and fully devoted to him. When everyone else left, they stayed. And church, I hope that we would be the kind of people who are committed to Christ no matter what. I hope you love Jesus so much that you would be willing to stay close to him even when it's dangerous. When everyone else has decided that the risk is too great, that you would push in and not fall away. Now, that's all big and theoretical. Let me push it a little closer to home. I hope we love Jesus enough to say no to our sin. Because sin can seem comfortable. And our sin may seem convenient. The question is, does our commitment to Christ push us towards him and away from our sin? Or are we willing to pull away for the sake of comfort? Questions worth asking. What we see in this, these women is that they saw the need to stay devoted, to stay committed, to see things through. They believed he was dead. They could have faced opposition, 
but out of love and devotion and a desire to honor Christ, they go to the tomb. And when they get there, they find something that they did not expect. Verse 4, looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. By the way, big rock, right? It was very large. And we don't know what they thought when they saw it moved. No doubt it was the first indication that things were not going to be the way they expected them to be, but their first thought probably is not resurrection. Their first thought is probably that someone got there before them. Maybe to rob, or maybe it was Joseph and Nicodemus. Maybe they'd come back to finish what they couldn't finish before. These ladies didn't know who moved the stone. We do, don't we? Matthew tells us very specifically, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. As much as I can this morning, I want us to consider these ladies good examples for us. The messenger, fun to think about. Ultimately, this story is a story about the power of God, right? This is a story of how God raised his son. God sent an angel. God sent an earthquake. God saw to it that the stone was moved. The women don't know it yet, but God is the one doing these things and a lot more than they know. The open tomb was just the first surprise. And then they get another one. Verse 5. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Now, put yourself in their shoes. Tomb's open. That's unsettling. It's good, but maybe unsettling. And I don't know when the last time was you walked into a, a tomb, an active tomb, but probably always just a little bit, you know, a little nerves, right? I think they would have hunched down to walk in and maybe holding each other's hands. And maybe because the tomb's open, maybe they thought we might see someone besides Jesus in there, but they didn't know who that could be. And so they go in. And what they see is a man sitting there, dressed in white and understatement. They're alarmed. You would be too. Mark describes him as a young man dressed in a white robe, which is Bible speak for we have an angel on our hands. White robe, a messenger from God. The other gospels tell us more specifically, it's an angel. And they're afraid, which is the almost universal reaction to angels. People are scared. And there's a standard response from the angels. Don't be afraid, right? Don't be alarmed. We see that in verse 6. Don't fear. He tries to give them some assurance and then he gives them the message that God has sent him to share. Verse 6, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Don't you always just want to hear, this is me, I, I want to hear, how did he say this, right? Monotone and slow, excited, smiling. We don't know. But he proclaims the greatest news of all time. He is Alive. The first proclamation of the gospel. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus has risen from the dead. Let me just consider a few things about what he said. He says a little bit more. 
but let's not rush past what he's already said. First, he acknowledges who they are looking for. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. And what we have is a reminder that Jesus was a real person. A real person who had a place in history and in geography. Jesus the Nazarene. And not only that, but he died a real death. And we spent quite a while last week talking about the realness of his death, didn't we? He didn't simply go unconscious. He didn't go into a deep time of sleep only to awake a few days later. He had died. The angel confirms who he is. He was crucified. He was killed. And then he says this. And this is where I just don't have enough equipment. I don't have good words. We just sit with this reality that he says for the first time, he's risen. Or if you want to quibble with the translators like I did, he says, he has been raised. It's a passive verb. Commentary speech is it's a divine passive. What does that mean? God raised Jesus. Jesus is God. Okay. Got some things, to right? God the Father raised his son from the dead. It was the work of God. It was the plan of God that Jesus would die, that God would raise him. And as I was reading this, think about the fact that the Father raised the Son to fulfill his plan of salvation. I kept going back. You remember that first sermon that Peter preached the day of Pentecost? Hopefully, if you're reading through the Bible with us, we just read Acts. But maybe this afternoon you would go back and just read Acts chapter 2 again. And think about Peter and what he went through in these days, only six weeks later or so, to preach this message. Let me just read you part of that message. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves have known. Hear the humanity of Jesus. He was real. He was from a place. He did things. You saw them. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. You, Israel, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by them. Fantastic. Peter, looking back, says, he was dead, he's alive. This is the message the angel conveyed. Jesus was a real person who died a real death and was raised from the dead. It's not metaphorical. It's not symbolism. It's not a spiritual reality. Jesus physically died. He physically rode. And there are spiritual implications, no doubt. But this was a real death and a real resurrection. We see that even in the final part. He says, he's not here, right? It's not that the body's here, but his spirit, we, we're proclaiming it's alive. No, no. He's gone. He's not here. He says, look, this is where he was. See the place where he laid. The tomb was empty. The body was gone. And I'm going a long way to say really obvious things. But this goes back to where we started this morning. If there is no resurrection, or if the resurrection is less than real, then our faith crumbles. We've got to be sure about this. Jesus really died. He really rose. 
And if the gospel of Mark ends with Jesus in a grave, let's pack it up. But thankfully, the story does not end there. The tomb where Jesus was buried was empty because God had raised him from the dead. And we know that this empty tomb part of it, this was significant. We can go back to Peter's sermon again. Acts 2, starting in verse 29. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. Now, who's David? David's the guy for them. Greatest king in the nation's history. He says, look at David that he both died and was buried, and you can go see his tomb right now. Sealed up, shot, um, dust of the bones there. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of David's descendants on David's throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. He's talking about Psalm 16. That Christ was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and we are all witnesses. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Christ both Lord, excuse me, made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. My point is this. Peter thought it was very important for everyone to know. Real person, real death. Real resurrection, right? This is central. So part of my aim this morning is to help us to get the realness of it. And then I also want you to consider the spiritual implications of what's happened. Because Jesus really died, really rose, this hits us today. You no longer are a slave to sin if you're in Christ. Now, if Jesus died and stayed in the grave, you have to answer for your sins. But because Jesus rose, if you confess your sins and trust in him, you don't pay the penalty for the things that you've done. Christ paid that for you by taking the wrath of God on your behalf. That just reminds you of a passage you know well. And I just want you to think, he really rose, so these things, if I'm in Christ, are really true of me. Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, you also may walk in newness of life. For if, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection just like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that, church, you don't have to be slaves to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. And the life he lives, he lives to God. So you, friends, in Christ, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Jesus Christ. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as sins, 
as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. This is why the end of the story matters, because that's what it accomplishes. We can know that we are free today from the power and the penalty of sin. And we have the hope that one day we'll be free even from its presence. Because Jesus rose from the dead, sin and death have been emptied of their power. And we too have the hope of resurrection. Now, I I try to convince myself that I'm not that old. My hair is starting to argue otherwise. Not real old, but I'm old enough to have known a lot of people and loved a lot of people who are no longer living. I'm old enough to know really clearly the reality of death. I'm also old enough or weak enough that I am just super aware of my own mortality. We don't think about most of us, the healthy ones among us, we don't think a lot about death when we're young. But as we get older and we see others pass, maybe you've had this experience, we start realizing, I'm not here forever. We understand the brevity of life. And while the thought of death and the death of those around me brings a certain level of sadness and grief, and if I'm honest, a little bit of fear at times of what that looks like for me or for my loved ones. Because Mark 16 happened, it can completely change the way we think about death. Let me read for you again from Paul. So this afternoon, when you have time and you're trying to decide what to watch, you're going to turn off the TV and you're going to read Acts chapter 2, okay? And then, before that, you're going to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me just read part of it, but you got to read it again, okay? I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and you will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall the saying come to pass that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that victory was secured in the Mark 16 part, right? When he rose from the dead. And we believe that happened and it's real and it changes everything. The tomb is empty. These women have gone to the tomb. The angel has told them that Jesus is alive. And then he gives them something to do. He gives them a message that they are supposed to take and to share. Verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. 
The tomb is empty, and now the women have a job. The job is no longer to anoint the body. The job is to take a message to the disciples. He's commissioning them to proclaim the gospel for the second time. Tell the disciples Jesus is alive, and they will see him. He says, Jesus is going before you to Galilee, and you will see him just as he told you. At this point, if you have your Bible, you can just flip back a couple of pages to Mark chapter 14. It's important for us here. This takes us back a few days, back to Thursday evening. This is after the Last Supper, after that Passover meal. Jesus' disciples, they leave the upper room, and we read this, Mark chapter 14, verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it's written, God will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So before he's arrested, before everything seems to spin out of control, Jesus is up front with his disciples. I'm going to die. You will abandon me. I will be raised, and then I'll see you in Galilee. And the angel tells these women, go tell the disciples, I'll see you in Galilee. Just like I told you. And it was a reminder to them, and the angel says to Peter in particular, about the rest of the conversation. Verse 28. Chapter 14, after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even if they all fall away, not me, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Peter, truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And the other 11 or 10 at this point all said the same. These women were to take a message from the angel to the disciples to remind them. What they would have remembered is, yes, Jesus said that he would see us in Galilee, but he also said that we would deny him, and we have, in fact. But friends, hear this. The message that God told the angel to tell the women, to tell the disciples, wasn't, I told you so. The message is not a message of shame. The message is, I will see you in Galilee. The message is, we will be together again. And there's no doubt that Peter and the rest of the disciples had shame and regret, but this message was not meant to shame them. It was a message of forgiveness and restoration. Jesus did not come back from the dead to shame his disciples for their lack of courage and faith. Jesus came back from the dead so that he could forgive their lack of courage. He did what he did. He went to the cross. He bore the wrath of God so that he could look at Peter and say, you're forgiven. You don't have to live in shame. You don't have to live in regret. Romans 8.1, write it down, put it where you'll see it. There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. You've done some things, haven't you? Man, I have. In Christ, no condemnation. 
Jesus rose from the dead. He did not come back to shame them. He came to forgive them. He came to restore them. He came to send them out with this message of forgiveness and restoration. If I had to pick one thing for you to take with you this morning, this is it. Jesus did not come back from the dead to shame you. Now, he disciplines those he loves. We can round that out, can't we? Jesus died and rose again so you can be forgiven of your sins. He came back from the dead and he sent this message to the disciples. We're going to be together. I'll meet you in Galilee. And you have stories of how you've lacked courage. You've had stories of how you have failed Christ. And the temptation is to think that Christ would not want anything to do with me because of what I've done. This was no doubt Peter's fear. But friends, this is why Christ died. He'll bear the punishment for your lack of faith, your sin. This is true of you in Christ, no condemnation. And if that's the message that was sent to the disciples, it's the message for us too. And I hope that the reality of resurrection forgiveness, the message of no condemnation will set you free to go, not that back into sin, but free to go and to live for him. And man, that's a strong way to end a sermon. We have a verse left though. It's the end and it's an unexpected verse. Look at verse eight. Then the women went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The angel has given these women good news, a message to share, and their response, at least initially, is fear and silence. Now, before we talk about their fear and silence, let me just address what may be an elephant in the room. Where does the book of Mark end? And the irony isn't lost on me that my whole introduction was about going to the end of the book. And now I'm going to suggest that we stop in verse 8. Didn't think that through. If you have your Bibles open, you probably see 12 more verses. Although in most of your Bibles, there's probably a bracket or a note that says something like, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. Now, what does that mean? And we may take a whole Wednesday night sometime soon to, to go a little bit deeper into this. What it means is that in the oldest copies of Mark that we have found, they end with Mark chapter 16, verse 8. And maybe say, okay, I'm, I'm good with that. But here's my question. Why is it here? Why do we have verses 9 to 20 printed in my Bible? And this is where things get slightly more complicated. The, the answer is that for a long time, the oldest ones we had found, the oldest manuscripts we found, they had this extra part. This, it's called the longer ending of Mark. But through the years, as we found older manuscripts, and many of them, they all start with verse 8. And so the general rule is the older, the more accurate. But you still say, well, then why is it here? If we're, if we're so convinced that it shouldn't be here, then why is it here? And... Why would Mark end his gospel in such a weird way with these ladies afraid and silent? 
seems like an odd place to stop. And that's, I think, why we have a longer ending. Because the early church looked at this and thought, that's not a good ending. But we know from Matthew and from Luke and from our own experience what happened. Before we send this thing out to the world, why don't we take true things and add them in so that this is more helpful? And I think it was good and well-intentioned people that gave Mark a more satisfying ending. But an ending that most likely was not inspired by God, except in places where it quotes other passages. But you say, I still have a question. <laughs> if you're so certain and so many people are so certain that this isn't part of the scriptures inspired, then why is it in my Bible? And the answer is because it would have been more confusing to take it out because for generations and generations, it was there. And that looks really deceitful that it's just gone, right? So almost collectively, all translators decided, let's, let's leave it there so as not to add more confusion. What I want to argue is this shouldn't make us trust our Bible less or translators less. It should make us trust our translators more because they're not trying to hide anything. This was here for a long time. We no longer think it's an inspired part of the text, but we want to be clear about what we think happened. I think I went further on that than I intended to. It would have been easier for me to just preach through the rest and have the satisfying ending. But since I'm convinced that the gospel of Mark ends in verse 8, my next question has to be, why would Mark end his gospel this way? And I've come to an answer for today that satisfies me, and I will offer it to you. Verse 7, we have seven negative responses from these ladies. They're astonished, they're afraid, they're silent. And as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, and this is the joy of going all the way through a book together, there's certain threads that we have seen all the way through, certain things that happen over and over and over. One thing that happens over and over in the Gospel of Mark is that people see Christ for who he is for the first time, and they respond with fear. So let's go back. Mark chapter 4, this is when Jesus and his disciples are on the boat. There's this huge storm. He speaks and he calms the storm. And the disciples were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Chapter 5, Jesus frees a man possessed by a demon That was the day when I said naked a lot, right? Because this guy, this demon was running at Jesus and naked and the demon, crazy dude. Jesus frees him from possession. Mark 5, 15, and Jesus came and saw the demon-possessed man and see, they came to Jesus and the one who had been with the legion was sitting there clothed in his right mind and they were afraid. Later in chapter 5, Jesus heals a woman, who, a woman who touches his coat. And the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before Christ, and he told her the whole truth. At the transfiguration, Peter and James and John see Jesus in all his glory. Mark 9, 6, they did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And there's six more examples. 
No other gospel writer includes that reaction so many times. It's a theme. When people see the power of Christ, it's overwhelming, it's terrifying. Because they've come face to face with this. He is who he says he is. In church, this is the right response to seeing God rightly. And this is why I think Mark ended his gospel this way with this response from these women. Because it's proof of what he set out to prove. Mark 1.1, this is the gospel of Jesus who is the Christ, the Son of God. And everyone who sees it, their initial reaction is stunned fear. And these women now know, I believe, he is who he said he was. And that's a lot to take in. Now what we've seen with these women in the other gospels, with the disciples, with all these who responded initially with fear, their next step is repentance and submission. Mark has proved, I think, and puts a stamp on it with this final verse, Jesus is the Christ, Son of God. And your first reaction should be stunned silence at God and what he's done. And then we should respond with repentance and faith, and we should give our lives to him. And I have prayers that I wrote before we started the gospel of Mark, and this was our prayer for us. Would you help us see Jesus? And would you give us no doubt of who he is? And would you help us to respond with full submission? That prayer continues today. How do we end the gospel of Mark? Instead of using my own words, let me just read the words of Paul. The way he ends 1 Corinthians 15 on the resurrection. He says this. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing this, that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's a fitting end, isn't it? Follow him. Kill sin for him. Put off the deeds of darkness. Your work for Christ is not in vain. Because he's risen. He's alive. Thus ends the gospel of Mark for us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have preserved it. Just this little conversation we just had about the end of the gospel of Mark is a reminder to us of the way you have preserved your word for us. We thank you for that. And we thank you that the story of Jesus did not end with him in the grave, but that you raised him from the dead defeating sin, defeating death, and giving us hope. God, it's my prayer that as we have seen you 
and your son more clearly this morning, that our response would be holy reverential fear followed by humble repentance and submission. Would you use us for the sake of our souls, for the sake of this community, for the sake of your glory in the world? Have your way in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.